So as, you, uh, as we transition into the text, I want to just introduce myself to you. My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here, and I love Pastor Appreciation uh, Month. Here's why I'm excited to see if there is another uh, Happy Meal uh, underneath here. There is not. I suppose I'll have to settle for this bottle of water. Uh, I, I guess you have, you have to serve for about a year here before you get a, a Happy Meal. That's fine. I could, uh, I could use the low calories anyway. I'm going to ask you this. I'm going to say a name. We'll play a game. I'll say a name, and you're going to shout out loud what you associate that name with. And so when I say Reverend Bill Miller, what do you associate his name with? I was thinking uh, McDonald's <clears throat> or maybe faithfulness to God's word. Well, maybe both. It's a, it's a toss-up between the two, right? Uh, what if I were to say President Lyndon Johnson? What comes to mind? Okay. All right. What, what if I were to say President George W. Bush? What would come to mind there? There you go. <clears throat> we'll, we'll leave it at that. Let's transition into the Bible. What if I were to say Adam? What comes to mind? Eve. How about King David? The life of Christ. How about if we were to transition into the New Testament and I were to ask you, when I say the word, the name rather, Euodia, what comes to mind? How about, <laughs> what? Well, if you had been helping me preach good sermons, you would have already read Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. And you would know that Paul calls out this woman, Yodia, along with her counterpart. And I'm going to try to say her name, <clears throat> Suntuki. Sounds a lot of fun. Sounds like a, a wild name there. He calls them out. And he says that you're to agree in the Lord. Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing this letter to care for the church at Philippi, calls out Yodia and Suntuki and says that you're to agree in the Lord. And now, for the rest of time, for the next 2,000 years, they are known, little known by some of you, as these two Christians that could not get along. I pray that as a result of our time in this text this morning, that we would be well on our road to being known for something other than this. Maybe for being known as a church comprised formerly as of two churches and now one able to agree in the Lord just as these two women were unable to agree in the Lord. Now, Let's jump into our text before you get into any crazy conclusions as to, who the, as to who these two women are and what this passage has to say about them. Let's actually go to God's word and see for ourselves. And so Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll be reading this morning. This is what the word of God says. I entreat Euodia and Suntuki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness 
be known to everyone, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word. Let's ask him to bless it this morning. Father, we have gathered this morning not to hear the words of a man, but to be helped by the words of the divine. And so we pray now that you would help us to see and to hear and to be helped. Father, that you'd help us to learn and receive and hear and see so that we can practice these things. And in and through this, we believe that God, you will be with us, the God of peace. We ask these things now, Jesus, in your name and for your glory. Amen. The big idea this morning, <clears throat> the main point, it really <clears throat> stems from last week. Excuse me. It's this idea that standing firm in the Lord produces peace in your life. Standing firm in the Lord produces peace in your life. In our fallen human state, we are too easily distracted from the state of standing firm. We're too too easily swayed. The battle in our mind, it takes place and it causes us to wander from the sheepfold. We fall from the guard that God has placed in and for us. We wander from the plains of peace into the valleys of danger and sin, the valley of the shadow of death. And instead of focusing on that which is beautiful and right and good, that which brings peace, we focus on that which is sinful, wrong, and even detrimental to us. And yet Paul, knowing this, calls out to the church at Philippi, to Philippi Church, and also by extension to Hagerstown Church, and he says this, Stand firm in the Lord, because when you do, this standing firm will produce peace in your life. Now last week we looked at this idea that we're able to stand firm because of the gospel working in and through us. Because of what Jesus has already accomplished for us. We're able to stand firm. And this morning we're going to see that when we stand firm, something happens in our lives. We are able, we are accessing peace as we stand firm. And so last week as citizens of heaven, Christians are empowered by the gospel to stand firm and press on. We looked at this idea. What are citizens of heaven? Who are citizens of heaven? We moved on. What does the gospel empower those citizens of heaven to do? And we finally ended with this definition. What are citizens of heaven? But the scriptures did not leave us or them, the church at Philippi, without tangible ways to apply this truth or this command to stand firm and to press on and to access peace. And so really, here this morning, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, provides for the church at Philippi, and again, by extension to us, three practical ways to stand firm in the gospel 
and thereby access this ever-desired peace. The first thing, the first practical way that he offers for them and for us this morning is to pursue unity. To pursue unity. Again, empowered by the gospel, through unity, we're able to experience peace. Not necessarily with God, that's already been realized. But peace now, one with the other. Furthermore, we're able to access prayer and prayer with thanksgiving. When we pray with thanksgiving, we also, again, access peace. The peace of God guards our hearts, as the scriptures say. And finally, an activity that Paul calls the Philippians and the Hagerstonians to is to ponder that which is good. To think about that which is good. And so we pursue, we pray, and we ponder all three leading us to peace. Peace is something that each of us long for in our relationships, in our lives, in our politics, on our Facebook feeds. And so let's get to work and see what the apostle has to say in greater detail. Our first bit of instruction this morning, it's addressed to these two women. They are to pursue unity. They're to have the same mind. They're to agree with one another. Let me ask you this. What would, it, what would you like to be remembered for? What would you like to be remembered for? Assuming that you'll be remembered at all. Remember, great honor would be to live, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. But if you are to be remembered, what would you like to be remembered for? What would you want to go down in history for? For being in disagreement with somebody else? For, for being in an argument or a spat? Would you like to be known for something greater? These two women are known to us today because they disagreed. And I don't want you to think for any instant that these two women were ungodly or even unchristian. We can assume by Paul's writing, we can assume by his comments that they were mature, faithful Christians, and yet at the same time, they're still struggling. That should be grace to you just to hear that, that it's okay to not be okay. One of the things that we say about us as a church as we gather is that we're all in process. Whether you've been a Christian for three days or whether you've been a Christian for 60 years, we're all in process together. We all have struggles. We're all working to honor God. We're all working to grow into the, into the image of Christ, into the stature of Jesus. And these two women, they're faithful Christians, and yet they're still struggling. We ask the question, what were they struggling about? What were they struggling with? And we're unable to, with confidence, fill in that gap. The apostle does not give us the privilege of knowing what they were arguing about. Perhaps they were arguing over matters of sin. Maybe one had sinned against the other. Unable to move past that. Unable to forgive one another. Maybe it was a matter of conscience. Maybe one believed that they should wear a mask and the other not. Maybe one believed that you should be vaccinated and the other not. But perhaps it was a matter of conscience. Maybe it was a matter of theology. Paul is calling them to agree and to have the same mind. And we might think, well, we should always do that at all costs. We should always agree. We should always work toward the unification of Christ's church just as he promised we would have. 
And at the same time, Paul is not calling them to be unified at the expense of true doctrine. And so maybe they're unified on some big issues. Maybe they're unified on the core issues. And maybe some of these peripheral issues they're not so unified on. And so what are they to do? Matters of sin they're disagreeing on, perhaps. Matters of conscience. Matters of theology. Perhaps it's just simply a matter of personality. Have you ever met somebody that you really just struggled to like? Some of you said, well, maybe three weeks ago uh, when that guy started preaching in that pulpit. Maybe some of you would be able to identify with this statement here. To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, now that's a different story. And yet still, in the face of our differences in personality, we're called to love one another and to agree. What underlines this English translation to agree is that they have the same mind. They have the same mind. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, you'll be, remember, you'll be reminded about this. The Apostle Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul doesn't tell us what the issue was. But we know from Scripture that differences in theology, differences in personality... None of these are actually able to cause wars. You might say, well, I disagree. We should be able to go to war over differences in theology and, over, and even to disagree and to argue and to go to war over issues of sin. But in honesty, we shouldn't. What is at the root of this war, of this disagreement between these two women is not theology, it is not sin, and it is not personalities. James chapter 4 tells us exactly what is happening between these two. James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, asks this question. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? What causes disagreements? What breaks the unity of the mind in the church of Jesus Christ? The answer, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you. You desire to have and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. At the end of the day, these two women were at odds, according to Scripture, because of their own selfish pride. You could still be of one mind, in a sense, and disagree about matters of conscience. We could still have unity in the face of sin, in the presence of sin, the gospel empowers us to do such a thing, to extend forgiveness even when we've been sinned against, to go boldly asking for forgiveness when we are the one who has sinned. And so this is not the issue. The issue is the pride in the heart of these women. To this sinful state, in their heart, the call of Christ, the, the call of humility sounds out. As we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind, have this agreement among yourselves, which is yours already in Christ Jesus. You see, they were in disagreement because of their pride. And that is a gospel issue. 
I want to make two observations about this particular set of verses, this particular situation that we find with these two women. It's a gospel issue. One, it's lying about the gospel. When we we experience disunity, when we are not in agreement as a church, when we are not operating in harmony, symphony, and love, we're lying about the gospel. We're lying about the actual state of the church for which Christ died and purchased and even built and is now edifying and sanctifying. Unity in the church is a declaration about the gospel that because Christ is one, we that are in Christ, we who are in Christ are also one. Unity in the church, it pictures for the world the good news that Jesus has made us a new people, a new nation, one nation in Christ, citizens of heaven, not enemies of Christ. And so when it comes to unity or the lack thereof, it tells the world another story. It tells the world a lie that Jesus has not made us one when in fact he has. And so it's so important that we as Christians not allow, we as a church not allow our differences our history, our preferences, and yes, even the minor issues of theology to separate us out and to cause gaps that our sinful pride and our selfish lusts can use and thwart, to thwart the testimony here in this city. It's a gospel issue. It's a gospel proclamation. And so it's imperative that they be of the same mind. It's imperative, Hagerstown Church, that we also be of the same mind. Furthermore, not only is it a gospel issue, but it is also a community affair. It's a community affair. What do I mean by that? Well, did you notice what Paul did? He did something that makes me feel uncomfortable. Maybe it makes you feel uncomfortable as well. What does he say? He, he talks to these two women and he says, you need to agree. I entreat each of you to agree and then he references another here in that congregation after asking them to agree to have the same mind he calls out to true companion asking him to help as well it's difficult for us to know really who this person is this true companion perhaps it is the the proper name of somebody we that's a possibility although most scholars don't think that's likely Perhaps this is uh, Paul referencing a specific person that goes by that nickname. Maybe he has a certain person in mind, even though he's using a general term. Or maybe he's speaking to the church entirely, the church at large, but each of them individually within mind. Each of you, maybe he's saying, it is your responsibility to help these two women to agree. Well, I would say it's possible that all of those are true, And yet we know for a fact that it is each of our responsibility to make sure and to work towards unity within the church. And maybe that makes you feel uncomfortable. If your brother and sister sitting across the aisle are having an issue, it is just as much your responsibility to work towards agreement, to work towards unity as it is their own. We're all in this together. We are all responsible to protect the unity of the church in the proclamation of the gospel by this church, which will be done chiefly through our unity in the eyes of our culture. So it's difficult to say who this person is, and at the same time we know that he is a part of the church, and it is his responsibility, just as it is our responsibility, to work towards unity within the church. And so you may ask, 
Well, how can I help a brother and sister, two brothers or two sisters, to agree in the Lord? Well, first, we see here in this text that we can remind them of the past. We can remind them of the past. Do you notice what Paul does? He calls them to agree in the Lord, and he, calls, he, he recalls a, 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 pre, a former time. And he says, there was a time when we were unified together. We were working together in the gospel for the glory of God. He calls back to the time past and says, we need to return to this time. Encouraging them to to forget in the gospel their own successes. To forget their own sins as we looked at last week. Each and every one of them. And yes, to forget the sins of others as well, which was forgiven, past tense, by Christ himself as they entered into the church. And so they're to be reminded of their past being covered by the cross of Christ. They're to be reminded of their past partnerships, one with the other, for the sake of the gospel. And we can do this same thing. We can remind one another as we are remembering or or considering the the present context of a disagreement here in the context of this church. Remind each other of what Christ has done in our own lives. What he has done through our joint efforts together. This is what Paul calls them to do. But furthermore, he also calls them subtly to point them toward the future. He says that their names are written in the book of life. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15 says this, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In Exodus chapter 32, we also read of the the book of life. And those who are in Christ, in a sense, now we know, those who are with God, those who have turned from their sins, are in covenant with Yahweh, their names are also written in the book of life. You see, this book of life, it has Old Testament roots. It refers to God's record of those who belong to him, who are in him, who are with him. And so Christian, your Christian enemy will also spend eternity with God in glory. Their name also is written in the Lamb's book of life. Their future is also your future. So if you're in the church and there was a time when your sin was forgiven and you worked in agreement and with your brothers and sisters, Paul says remind them of that, but also point them forward to the future. Not only is your past unified in Christ, but your future is also secure in him as well. And they too will spend eternity as citizens of heaven with Christ. And so we know this, citizens of heaven, they're Christians empowered by the gospel to stand firm and to press on, and we've been given some godly examples of how we can do such a thing and thereby access the peace that we desire. And the first thing that we're to do that we see Paul calling the church at Philippi to do is to pursue unity. Unity that we learned a few weeks ago was already secured in Christ. And as we pursue unity, we enjoy peace. That's not the only practical way that we can experience peace in the here and now. He also offers us this idea that we pray 
and that we pray with thanksgiving. And as we pray with thanksgiving, it does include this sense of peace that so many of us have experienced and even this morning are resting in. And so we pray with thanksgiving. We pray with gratitude. Look at verse 4. The Word of God says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so here at the beginning of this short passage that I just read, beginning in verse 4, Paul gives us his ever-present Philippian reminder again, and that is to what? Rejoice. We We are to rejoice. We're to rejoice in the Lord. We're to find our joy in the Lord, not in our circumstances, not in whether we are in agreement with our brother and sister about the finer points of theology, but we're to rejoice in the Lord. It's an interesting transitional point here. Because Christians at war with each other cannot truly be at peace with their Heavenly Father. If you're at war with your brother and sister, you are unable to rejoice in God. If you place your faith in God, if you are at peace with God, then you are at peace with man. And the opposite is also true. Those who are enemies of God who are at war with God, are also, in many respects, at war with their fellow man. I love Spurgeon's thoughts on this idea of rejoicing. He says, people who are very happy, especially those who are very happy in the Lord, are not apt either to give offense or to take offense. Their minds are so sweetly occupied with higher things that they are not easily distracted by the little troubles that naturally arise among such imperfect creatures as we are. Joy in the Lord is the cure for all discord. And should it not be so, what is this joy but the concord of soul, the accord of the heart with the, with the joy of heaven? Joy in the Lord then drives away discords of earth. Hagerstown Church, if we are to represent heaven here on earth, if we are ambassadors of that great city, heaven, then joy should be our main feature. Christ's presence must be, should be, is here in this place, and therefore in his presence is what? Fullness of joy. We don't rejoice in our situations. We rejoice in our Savior. We don't rejoice necessarily alone in the good times that we have at church or even in our fellowships. Not in the gifts that have been given to the church and to you individually, but we rejoice in the giver of gifts. The giver of all good gifts. Verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone this idea of reasonableness it stands for the attitude that doesn't seek retaliation it's not tit for tat it represents a a person's willingness to to give and to take instead of always having to to give what's coming to the other person 
or to demand on their own rights not being infringed upon. This is this idea of reasonableness, one yielding their own privilege for another, to be gentle, to be kind, courteous, tolerant, treating others the way that you yourself would wish to be treated. This is what it means to be reasonable in this context, to be forbearing. And this reasonable person is not spineless. They're not wishy-washy, allowing just anything to pass, but ultimately they're selfless without pride, as we saw in that first point. Let me ask you this. How are you doing in this area? Are you finding yourself able to rejoice in the Lord? Are you finding yourself able to experience peace in the Lord? Peace in your life? Well, this portion of text that we've just looked at that that calls us to rejoice and calls us to be gentle with one another, it seems a bit disjointed at first. But immediately after correcting these two women, he commands them all to rejoice and to demonstrate a gentleness one toward the other. And what does he say? The Lord is near. He's saying, listen, he stands at the door. He's watching. He's near. He's listening. And furthermore, he is preparing to come. He's preparing to gather his church. He's preparing to judge. He's preparing to set things right. I think the context is this. The the idea is this. As he transitions from calling them to rejoice, or, or I'm sorry, calls them from pursuing unity to prayer and with thanksgiving, he's saying, I am near. The Lord is near. The Lord is near to his return, and he will set things right. So perhaps you struggle to find and experience unity. One of the ways that we can do that is Paul says, hey, be forbearing in this life, because the Lord will set things right when he comes. And do you know that he is watching what's taking place right now? Maybe as you struggle this morning to really activate that unity that Christ has given to you this morning. You say, well, I just can't let it slide. I can't let that sin against me or against my friend or my family member or former pastor. I can't let it slide this morning. I'm just unable to do so. Well, Paul is saying, rejoice in the Lord. He is near. Be gentle one to another. The Lord is coming to judge. And if you have concerns that you're unable in your own strength to release Bring them to the Lord in prayer. He's present. He's listening. And so pray to him. But he doesn't just say to pray to the Father and to let our requests be made known. He says to do so with what? With thanksgiving, with gratitude. Why would he call us to pray with gratitude? Well, not only does he want us to know that the Lord is present, the Lord is listening, the Lord is coming to set things right, but furthermore, the Lord has already worked in a way that is kind and gracious and fair on your behalf and on behalf of those who are also in the church. 
And so he calls us to pray with gratitude. What does gratitude do? Well, gratitude sifts through the past and it gathers hope for the future. Gratitude sifts through the past, gathering hope for the future. The Lord is at hand and emphasizes this idea that Jesus will return and that we're to pray with gratitude because he has already worked. He has already been kind. And so church, regardless of what you face, we can be confident that Jesus will protect us. We can be confident that Jesus will provide for us. How do we know that? Because we can look at what he's already done for us. The word of God says that he who did not spare his own son, Romans chapter 8, how will he not give us freely all things? And so when we consider with gratitude what he has done for us in the past, are we not also be guarded by peace. And so Paul calls us to pursue unity. Furthermore, Paul calls us to pray with gratitude. And finally, he calls us to ponder what is good. Or to ponder what is good. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Ponder that which is good. What are these things that we're to ponder? Ponder what is true, what is honorable, what is just. Pure, lovely, commendable, those things that are excellent. And as we do, what comes of this? Peace. Look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. We could spend a long time this morning working through each and every one of these things. For instance, we can look at whatever is true. We're to think about whatever is true. Why is truth so important? Well, in this day and age, it's not a matter, what's valuable is not a matter of what is true, but what is practical. What works? If it gets you to the place that you want to be, it doesn't matter if it's true. That's the age that we live in. Whether it makes sense, whether it's even scientific, doesn't matter. Not in this day and age. And yet, the Word of God calls us to think about and to meditate on what is true. We're to meditate and to think about what is honorable, what is of good report, what's even respectable. We're to think about that which we would be pleased others see us thinking about. Whatever is just, whatever is fair, whatever is in accord with God's divine standards, whatever is pure and holy and upright, whatever is lovely beautiful as it were, whatever is commendable, worthy of honor, whatever these things are, we're to think of them. When I think of this description, when I think of this list of all of the things that Paul calls us to think about, I think, well, it it would be best to think about the most true things, 
the most honorable things relative to each other. And if we were to climb that ladder and sift through all that we have to think about, what would be the most true thing that we could think about? What would be the most honorable thing that we could think about? What about the most just thing? The most pure, the most lovely, most commendable, the most excellent thing, the most worthy of praise, what would that be? I can't help but think of Psalm 119, 165. The law of the Lord. It's true. The law of the Lord, the Word of God, it's, it's honorable, it's just, it's pure, it's lovely, and it's commendable. And I don't want to be over-simplistic. There's lots of things that we could think about that fit this list. But I want to cut to the chase and get to the end of the matter. What is the most true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable thing that we could think of? It is, not, is it not the Word of God? Hagerstown Church, as you think about your own life, as you think about even this past week, I would ask you, have you experienced peace? Have you fellowshiped this week with the God of peace? Have you experienced and rejoiced in the peace of God? Paul is saying for us this morning, a sure way for us to experience and to fellowship with the God of peace and experience the peace that he gives is to meditate on his word. Psalm chapter 1. I love what it says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight, his love, his rejoicing is in the law of the Lord. And on his law does he meditate day and night. Hagerstown Church, if we're to experience peace collectively and individually, we are to experience a peace that passes all understanding where our minds have to be set on things that are above. And they'll only be shaped in that way. They'll only be sanctified to that end by that which is true. That which is the word of God. The law of God. Think about that this morning. And furthermore, I can't help but read Psalm chapter 1 and not think of Jesus. Oftentimes when we think of and we read Psalm 1, we think of this is a, a call to each of us individually to not walk in the counsel of the wicked, to not stand in the way of the sinner or the seat of the scoffer, but instead to delight in the law of the Lord. And in fact, this is for us. It's an encouragement for us to meditate on the law day and night. But in a greater level, in a, in a grander way, this is about not you, but about Jesus Christ. Who he himself did not receive the counsel of the wicked. He did not stand in the way of the sinner, bless God. Nor did he sit in the seat of the scoffer, but he, on behalf of his church, delighted in the law of God. And in the law of God did he meditate day and night. And because of that, he is like a tree 
planted by streams of water that yields fruit, church, of which we are in its season, and its leaf does not prosper. Church, that's true of us. But what's true of the wicked? Those who are enemies of God, they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Why? Because they do not meditate. They do not think about that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. They don't think on that which is excellent and worthy of praise. And yet, church, we have been called to do so, to follow the example of Christ and also to enjoy the peace that Christ has afforded for us. And so we are in him experiencing that peace. We live in a day of 24-7 news. We meditate on war, the possibility and the rumors of war. We meditate on COVID. We meditate on politics. We meditate and think about all day bank accounts, financial portfolios, future retirement plans, what we'll eat for dinner, personal relationships, These things consume our lives. We meditate on these things, and yet we experience no peace when we do. And it's not as though these things aren't important and worthy of our attention. And yet in the face of all of this, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, presses through those things and says, they are consuming your life. Think about, meditate on, be consumed by the words of God. The scriptures remind us, great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend you, and nothing shall make you stumble. When your eyes are on the news, you're sure to stumble. When your eyes are on the shortcomings of your brother or sister, or even yourself, you're sure to stumble. But when our eyes are on the Lord, and he who fulfilled the law perfectly, we will not stumble. You sow a thought, you reap an action. You sow an action, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a character. And you sow a character, you reap a destiny. The prow of the ship points in the direction of where the ship will go. Where is your ship going? What are you thinking of? What do you meditate on? Do you meditate on what God has offered to you? Do you meditate on his word? Hagerstown Church, stand firm in the Lord. And as you do, meditate, ponder his law. It will produce peace in your life. I'm going to invite you to pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for the truths that Jesus meditated on your word, that he loved your law. Even in the face of temptation, he quoted your scriptures. Not only serving as an example for us, but following that righteous path that you had laid out for him. Father, he meditated on your law. Would your church not do the same? We know that when we do, we will experience peace, a peace that passes understanding, a peace likened to that of a child in the arms of their mother, resting, enjoying peace. 
Will we not think the thoughts that you have us to think? Furthermore, would we not pray confident that you are near celebrating what you have already done for us? And Father, would we not work towards unity, a unity that you have already given to us? Would we not hold sins one against the other, sins for which Christ has already died? Father, would we be unified in the gospel? That in your kindness and in your mercy to us, and in our fallen sinful state, you in your mercy sent Christ to pay for the sins of those who would turn from their own lusts and receive salvation through the cross of Christ. Father, would we not pursue the unity that you have already given to us and thereby experience peace? Father, we reach our arms out this morning and we receive this gift that you have already given to us, this gift of peace from a God of peace. We love you and we thank you for these truths. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.